Our friends from Healthy Bud just launched a new exciting product and our dog Zippo has been absolutely obsessed. Their mini training treats are packed with superfoods like lion's mane, reishi, and salmon oil to support brain health and with over 500 treats per bag and just one calorie per treat, you can rest assured that you're providing guilt-free taste and nutrition in every bite. To grab a bag yourself or a few, head over to us.healthybud.co and use our code FP20 to save 20% on your first order. Welcome to the Family Pups Podcast. As you know, this is where we have conversations about the most commonly requested dog training and dog behavioral issues. I have to say I might be overexcited about this episode. What would you say? <laughs> Why was that funny? Why was that funny? I like, uh, I like your joke. Why? What's, uh, what's the topic today going to be, Tanya? <laughs> I guess we are going to be talking about over-excitement over, in dogs. Over-excitement. What a, what a coincidence mm-hmm. that I'm over-excited about the over-excitement episode. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> Keep going. All kidding aside, obviously we're talking about over-excitement in dogs today. And so let me tee up the first question. Why is overexcitement troublesome? Why is it difficult? You know, why isn't it just a, a part of everyday life of dog parenthood? Overexcitement is definitely a normal part or a part of a lot of pet parents' lives. That's for sure, because it can be normal. Like mm-hmm. some people are just more excited and enthusiastic. Are you talking about people or dogs here? Yeah, I'm just kind of giving people as an example how just everybody's different and everybody has different tendencies and, you know, excitement and overexcitement is one of those things as well. Mm -hmm. Just um, pretty normal, um, pretty common, but the issue comes with the set of behaviors that result from overexcitement. So when we have overexcited dogs, then we are very likely to be experiencing jumping behaviors. You know, they might be pulling on the leash mm-hmm. or lunging towards other people or dogs that yeah. they're excited to meet. Um, they may be mouthing as well so they may kind of jump and bite or mouth at the same time it's not an aggressive type of bite but depending on the intensity depending on you know how much pressure the dog is putting it can definitely be quite uncomfortable so definitely this the set of behaviors that come as a result of overexcitement are issues Mm -hmm. that pet parents usually contact us for. Yeah, I guess what I'm hearing there is that not a lot of people might come to you for overexcitement per se, specifically, but 
you know, the, the set of behaviors, as you mentioned, that overexcitement might cause, whether it's, hey, I, I need help with this jumping behavior or reactivity. And so you probably don't hear a lot of people coming to you about overexcitement specifically. Well, I think that people know that, you know, oftentimes they understand that overexcitement is what drives those behaviors. So they would mention it in the conversation. Um, it's just, yeah, I think it's important for us to be able to pinpoint what is the cause, uh, what is driving that behavior, what emotion or trigger do we have behind it yeah and what behaviors do we have as a result what consequences do we have <laughs> um, there too yeah. and that can just give us more clarity mm -hmm. when it comes to creating our training plan in resolving those specific issues as well mm -hmm. one thing that you know we're probably going to go over today is you know, as a human being, I could understand overexcitement in a positive sense, right? If I'm overexcited about going, I wouldn't say overexcited, of course, but if I'm super excited about going on vacation, if I'm super excited about, you know, uh, doing a, an activity that I really love, hanging out with friends or whatever, I could understand that. Um, but one thing that seems to be, at least in the literature, is an overexcitement rooted in stress and anxiety and maybe fear. Uh, and maybe that's something that maybe people don't really quite grasp as much. Um, you know, how would you, how do you find yourself communicating this overexcitement rooted in more of a negative feeling uh, than a positive one to your clients so that at least they're on board with you and they, they understand now what's going on with their dog or, whereas before maybe they didn't. Mm -hmm. Well, what I usually say is that, you know, when we have excitement, so the root, the root um, category, right? It can be arousal, excitement. And then we also know that, you know, when you have a certain, um, you know, type of arousal, due to a certain trigger, yeah. you know, you can get really excited, but you can also get kind of stressed and anxious. Mm -hmm. So oftentimes like anxiety and overexcitement can be the same type of energy. Yeah. They just have a different expression. Mm -hmm. And I, I usually find that people understand what I mean when I say that. Mm -hmm. So it's just the same root, the same place that it's coming from, but it's just different way of expressing that um, same energy or emotion. Mm -hmm. And is it critical for you to, you know, let's say you go to an initial consultation, you get some experience and exposure to the dog, you see that there's a certain level of excitement or overexcitement that you could plainly see, and maybe the client has already told you that. Is it vital for you to know so that you could do your work that if that overexcitement is caused by a positive or negative feeling, or it's largely not a big deal because you're just trying to kind of curtail the, the, the unwanted behaviors that are rooted in those feelings? Yeah, so... There might be overlap when it comes to the set of skills that we're teaching, right? So we may be teaching 
relaxation, coping skills. We may be redirecting to sniffing, which can be a calming activity as well. So there, there might be overlap of the actual set of skills that we're going to teach um, these dogs. But if we are dealing with fear or anxiety, then we're going to need to add a certain type of desensitization and counter conditioning mm -hmm. or just getting used to and changing emotional response into the picture. I see. We still need to desensitize the dog, the overexcited dog that is just... Um, from positive feelings. Yeah, from yeah. positive feelings. Yeah. We still will need to desensitize them, but we won't necessarily have to pair the uh, sight of the the trigger yeah. with something positive mm -hmm. because they are already feeling positive about it. Sure. So okay, okay. That makes um, sense. we're creating the exposures. We're teaching them the skills that we would like to see instead. Um, with the overexcited dog, we're just going to reward them for practicing those desirable behaviors. With the scared, anxious dog, we are going to do that, but we're also going to just reward them for noticing mm -hmm. their triggers as well so that we can start to foster more positive emotions. Mm -hmm. Great. So last question from me, uh, and this is more of a philosophical one. I know we talked about it a little bit the other day, but when you are training an overexcited dog, whether from positive or negative feelings, do you feel like you have the ability to change an overexcited dog to a calm dog or are you just changing the behaviors that are rooted in those feelings and now they're just better at either not doing those unwanted behaviors or they have an alternative behavior uh, to those behaviors that are more now acceptable to you i know it's a little philosophical but what's kind of your thought process when you hear me say something like that it really depends on the dog mm -hmm. and depends on their age, the stage in life that they're at. Because if we have, let's say, a dog that is eight months old, they're very likely to be overexcited. It's just because of where they are in their life, mm -hmm. because of the, the surge of hormones that they have in their body. So yeah, the chances are they're going to be pretty excited if they're friendly when it comes to mm -hmm. seeing people and yeah. other dogs and having those interactions. Now, um, our goal will be to give the dog skills, give the human ways to communicate with the dog, um, teach the dog how to calm down. Um, are we going? Is are we going to have a calm dog at ten months of age? I mean, the chances are not really, yeah. <laughs> but we can have a dog who is much more equipped mm -hmm. uh, to navigate situations as well as their humans. Now, if we look at that same dog when they're three or four, maybe we can say, okay, well, now we have a calm dog. So it, it's just, it can be so individual and it can be so dependent on what we have going on for example a dog may be overexcited if they're living in a house in a home that has small children but that same dog may be perfectly fine um, in a home where there's only adults and not so much excitement mm -hmm. so 
there is definitely a lot of moving pieces. Um, I always want to stress to my clients that the most important thing is just accept and work with the dog that we have in front Mm -hmm. of us. We want, yeah, sometimes you want to change behaviors, but we also want to just make sure that we have the best version of our dog. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've, we've talked about this in the past, but you can have different breeds, genetic predispositions, um, you know, training, learning history. So you can have just so many components that are playing a role into why this dog is the way that they are. Mm -hmm. Um, So that it can be hard for me to tell you or a client when I meet them for a consultation that there will be a certain period of time and then we'll have some sort of a dramatic transformation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, it's a philosophical question because when we see another human or another dog, you know, we define them as calm or not calm by the behaviors that we see. I mean, who's to say that person is a calm person? Aren't they just kind of the sum of the behaviors that that we're noticing? But it, it just really reminded me, last question. Um, so here's the last, last question. But Have you been in any situations where, you know, I think you were talking about if you have an eight month old puppy, they're just excited about the world, excited about life. And so where is that line for you in terms of maybe a client might have a different definition of what is calm and what is overexcited. And when they're like, look at my crazy overexcited dog. And you're like, well, that, that looks like a, you know, you might not say it, but in, in your mind, you might be like that that's like a pretty normal looking puppy or dog to me in terms of the behaviors. And so I guess my question is, have you gotten into any situations where their definition and your definition might be off and you might want to say something because at least from what you might want for the dog parent to not suppress some of these natural inclinations that these dogs have uh, puppies have particularly early on because yeah you know that that might lead to other behaviors down the road so where is that balance how do you communicate that do you say anything you know all of that yeah so i oftentimes would say you know actually this is pretty uh, typical for dogs of this age or you know if you've just adopted this dog from a rescue this is pretty typical of something that you can expect and i find that oftentimes people would feel better about hearing that because like a certain relief yeah they don't know what the normal is or what the average is maybe they just have an idea of the ideal dog in their head or the the dog that they were hoping to have and then when they are seeing some behaviors that are undesirable they may be kind of freaking out it's like is this normal Mm -hmm. um you know, is this like going to be much worse off as we continue living with this dog in the future? So sometimes just kind of recognizing, hey, this is normal. It's not out of the ordinary. And, you know, this is what we can do in order to start to to help you and your dog that can just kind of put us in this proactive Mm -hmm. state to where, okay, 
we we get it it's normal and now let's figure out what is going to be our plan in order to to help us feel more empowered mm-hmm. and to help the dog also navigate their emotions okay last last question i swear <laughs> um do you find that some people have a harder adjustment when maybe the dog that they had growing up or the dog that they just had prior, maybe that dog passed away, for example, and they adopted a new dog. And this dog is just a different standard deviation uh, away in terms of overexcitement. Is that adjustment hard for them? Um, How have you seen people deal with that? Uh, I think that's interesting. Mm -hmm. That can depend on the person too. I think that some people, yeah, they can be a little stuck in missing their old dog and maybe even romanticizing you know how good they were or Mm -hmm. how they might have forgotten that they were actually kind of difficult when they were a puppy Mm -hmm. too because it's been so long since last time they've had a puppy and it can feel really overwhelming you know bringing a new dog home but again we have to give the dog that we have right now a chance and we have to accept them for who they are we just like our you know family and our partners (laughs) (laughs) we may wish to change them and there's steps that we can take in order to communicate things but you know we that's just how life is we just have to accept that this is who we are and it's it's a bunch of mindset changes that we have to do right Mm -hmm. with with these types of things where you may have just like normal natural behavior or just a different individual and how do you in your mind just make peace with what is mm. in order to help you focus your attention and energy into more productive activities spitting bars spitting bars that was uh dropping knowledge tanya's dropping knowledge <laughs> over here that was uh i got inspired a little bit i mean that was, that was wonderful So great. So let me introduce our guest today. Our guest today is Trish King. Trish has been a professional in the animal world for over 30 years. As director of the behavior and training department at the Marin Humane Society, she built a department known throughout the United States for its quality. Trish established a canine behavior academy at MHS for new and interested trainers. She currently teaches the Academy of Dog Behavior and teaches workshops and seminars on behavior, canine management, temperament assessment, and handling difficult dogs, among other topics. In addition, she and her partner own Canine Behavior Associates, consulting with and helping dogs and their owners. Her extensive knowledge of animal behavior, as well as her sense of humor, has made her a popular speaker at such venues as the Association of Pet Dog Trainers, Uh, the Humane Society of the U.S., American Humane Association, and California Animal Care Conferences. Trish authored a critically acclaimed book for dog owners titled Parenting Your Dog um, by TFH Publications. She has written numerous articles about dog and cat behavior for local and national newspapers and magazines. She also developed the canine calming cap marketed by the Thundershirt Company, to help dogs that are overly anxious or excitable. So without further ado, 
Introducing Trish King to the podcast. Hello. Good to meet Hi. you. Hi. I'm Charles, by the way, and Tanya. this is Tanya. I figured. <laughs> <laughs> how's, the, how's your day going so far, Trish? Oh, it's fine. Thanks. Yeah? It's okay. Yeah. Just finished writing up a consult. Oh. Okay. Nice. Yeah, I was uh, a little surprised you uh, scheduled this for Thursday because I think I, I saw that your Fridays or your Wednesdays are your typical days off, but I'm guessing today's a working day for you. Yeah, I did a consult, well, two consults this morning, but, you know, but I'm off tomorrow, so I'm doing other things. Okay, great, great. And have you been on a number of podcasts? I, I, I recall doing a couple searches. I, I didn't find too many hits. How many have you done so far? Do you recall? Oh, I've only done, I think I've just done the Michael Chicazio one. Okay. The, um, by the end of the leash, yeah. by the end of the dog. Yeah. Um, you know, I haven't kind of tried to do any. I'm at the tail end of my career. Okay. I'm not trying to to find more listeners or anything like that. Sure. You know. So was there something in our reach out that grabbed your attention in terms of wanting to spend your time on, on this topic with us? Oh, I think that talking about arousal is really, really good, actually, mm -hmm. because... Because I think that Americans have the wrong, wrong idea about it. Oh, could could you elaborate on that a little bit? Well, um, I think that. Well, I was just talking to my client about it this morning. <laughs> what we are a very busy species. We are all we were intellectually um, involved all the time. You know, uh, you can't go to a an airport or anything if, without having everybody on their phone sure. constantly getting feedback, constantly getting stuff. So we are, we are a species that is endlessly curious mm. and, and wants to keep on making things um, more and more interesting. Sure. We also are awake a long time. Mm. We're awake. We sleep eight hours and we're awake for what, 18 hours. Mm -hmm. So in the case of um, dogs or other predators, it's the precise opposite. Um, they they are supposed to hunt, yeah, and then and then eat, mm. and maybe have sex, and then sleep, and play a little bit, yeah. But essentially, the sleeping waking cycle is more or less reversed. So, you know, you, they normally would sleep 16 hours a day, 12 to 16 hours a day and be awake for a, you know, a shorter period of time. Mm -hmm. And this is cool for us because that means that we can live with dogs because we're so busy that, you know, you, you can only give so much time to dogs, sure. to, to your dog. If you don't have a dog walker or something like that, and people didn't until fairly recently. Mm -hmm. They didn't have, so, you know, your dog just hung out in your front yard mm -hmm. or your backyard and chased away anybody who came onto the territory and kind of slept and they're, they're um, spatially, they, they sleep in different places. This is what they tend to do. They go from one place to sleep and another place to sleep and another place to sleep and they're half awake. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So since, since they're half awake, it isn't the same kind of quality sleep as they would get at night. Mm -hmm. But if you then turn this around and every time you come home, 
everything's all about excitement. Yeah. Oh yeah, this is fun. Or the dog walker comes or they go to the dog park or they go to daycare. Then what happens is they get addicted to the wrong kind of excitement. Mm. In my opinion. Yeah. I guess you might be telling them that they're maybe they're overstimulating their dog. Am I hearing that correctly? Yes. Um, okay. Yeah. And so I think people are overstimulating their dogs, but they're not doing it on purpose. Okay. They are doing it because they think that the dog requires that because we require it. So sure. they're identifying with their dog and they're going, okay. But if you've ever had a baby, you know, the baby needs a heck of a lot of sleep. Yeah. They do not need to be constantly stimulated. Yeah. And because they're doing a lot of growing, mm. but then of course, as they get older, they are awake more and more often. And so what happens is that we think dogs are like adult people, not like children. Interesting. And they're probably a little bit more like if you wanted to make a, be a comparison to human beings. Yeah. They're a little bit more like a two to three year old child. Mm. They require a lot more naps. They require a lot more sleeping. And there was a, and I'm not going to be able to tell you what it was. But there was, I mean, who did it? But there was a study of, I think, two to 3,000 Indian dogs. Are you aware of that one? Mm -mm. The study in India? Mm -mm. Um, and what they discovered was that the dogs didn't go more than six blocks from their central location. Oh, interesting. And that they slept the vast majority of the time. Mm -hmm. So dogs all by themselves would not be likely to go on three-mile walks, mm -hmm. um, you know, if they're there, the, the dogs that we have come from kind of scavengers. Mm -hmm. So they're village dogs and village dogs hang around the village. Yeah. So that that's kind of what they do. And they eat when they can mm -hmm. and they sleep a lot and they, you know, like to get petted, you know, all those things yeah. that our dogs like. Yeah. To happen. So we seem to be projecting onto our dogs of, Hey, I, if I was just laying there for as much time you were laying there, I'd probably be reaching for my phone or I'd be turning on the TV to get a certain level of excitement. But that dog's like perfectly fine doing exactly what they're doing yeah. at that time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that that guilt is actually causing a lot of people mm. to over stimulate their dogs and over excite yeah. their dogs. And the problem is that this can actually lead to bad behavior. Mm. So I think you mentioned in your email about a dog that gets excited every time they pass a particular house. Yep. And so if they, and so what happens is the dog then learns to get excited in, in advance. They get anticipatory excitement about what's going to happen when they get there. And so they start pulling at the leash and then getting excited and then start barking. And that's because excitement is an adrenaline burst mm -hmm. and adrenaline is addictive. Yeah. So even though the, the, the first emotion that they felt when they went by the, that particular house and the dog barked was fear. Yeah. As a, after a while, what happens is that turns into this anticipatory excitement and then they get addicted to that, mm -hmm. that adrenaline rush. And that's just very, very bad for our dogs. So, yeah. So um, to extend on that question, you know, I wanted to come up with a human example as well. And so, you know, let's say I was bullied when I was younger and I knew where my bully's mm -hmm. house was or their neighborhood or whatever. And 
as a young child, my instinct, and it was always the same instinct, was avoid that area at all costs because something either scary or maybe physically harmful mm-hmm. might happen to me there. And so the idea of me just wanting to just go there on my own to get an adrenaline okay. rush just doesn't really like that doesn't really you don't s- identify with yeah it, it does that doesn't square for me and the only example i could come up with is people that might go to move scary movies or roller coasters or haunted houses and so is the key here there that maybe the dog is initially afraid nothing really bad happened to them and so they're essentially going to like a scary movie where they're safe, but then they could get some of that, you know, adrenaline feelings that they're getting. Yeah. Yeah. And and it, it's actually even more ap- appropriate if you think, okay, so the dog was scared, but the dog has you with them. Mm. You're walking on leash. You're a big brother. I see. You're the one who's going to take care of that dog. Mm. If if um, in so many cases, if that dog was all by himself walking past the the the, the barking dog behind the fence, yeah. they would just scooch by mm. because they're all by themselves. But because they're with you and you you give them false courage. Mm. So it's like, you know, big brothers right there. Yeah. I, I've got them and I, you know, you're going to make me safe. <laughs> and then they start to have a really good time. Oh, interesting. So they have these huge hulking like bodyguards around them. So they're like, what, 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 what oh, do yeah. you do? Yeah. And I wonder. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You see? <laughs> yeah. I wonder yeah. here also, like when it comes to the leash in this specific scenario, how much of a role it plays, right? Because you can just kind of create that forward movement and oh yeah more pulling and more excitement so it, it can just kind of snowball all of its own too oh yeah it actually it i think snowball is a really good term for it it just mm. keeps ex- get, getting worse and worse and worse the leash is a connection between the dog and the owner so the dog can feel everything that the owner is doing and the owner can feel this well presumably the owner can feel what the dog is doing it also causes the dog frustration Mm -hmm. because they can't get at what they want to get at. And so that combination can cause a huge amount of arousal. Probably 90% of the dogs that I see that have leash reactivity, if you drop the leash, they won't be reactive. Yeah. Right. For sure. I mean, I think almost all dog trainers know this. So the technique that I use for teaching dogs like this is a long line technique where the part of the leash is always on the ground. Mm. So the dog is not feeling yeah. the feedback, the, the feedback. Yeah. And that it, boy, does that work? Mm. It is. Um, it's my very favorite technique for teaching dogs actually to walk on leash period mm-hmm. because they use that leash all the time. Yeah. I think, you know, to be kind of, contrary about it i i think that the leash was the worst tool we ever managed to develop because mm. i think the dogs don't they never look at their owner because they don't have to yeah the owners often don't look at the dog because they don't have to yeah so you know you see i see people in our neighborhood going for a walk with their dog and they're on their phone yeah you know and the, so the dog is kind of just attached and the person is attached mm. but they're not walking together yeah yeah, there's a there's, and, and, yeah, there's and, security there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's security, but it's also 
I, I just think that it leads to everybody just nobody paying attention to what the other one wants. Yeah. You know, you, you see somebody walking along with their dog on a leash and the dog really has to go to the bathroom and the owner is not paying any attention at all. And they're just kind of dragging the dog along and the dog is going, no, 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 really. I got to go. I got to totally. go. And, yeah. So that, that it's not, it isn't a, a fair tool. Yeah. Yeah, I do find it when I have to work with clients who struggle with leash skills and pulling on leash and just in general, the, the, the first thing we have to build is some attention to the handler because mm -hmm. it's just, yeah, it, for some dogs, they would never think to like look at you because maybe they're very affectionate at home but once they go outside there's so many smells and so many things going on and they're in their own world just doing their thing and their human is just the extension behind the leash so unless we start to build some attention and checking in yeah. so that the dog acknowledges and the other way around you right. know the, for the human to have a tool to reward what they want, it will be difficult to make any further progress unless we have that first initial step. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so if you take, if you take the, if you eliminated the leash, you just, you started off working with young dogs and you eliminated the leash, you would, you would probably have to play different games than if you were, you have a leash. Yeah. And that's, that's why I like the long line technique so much because it, in effect, eliminates the leash. You're still using a leash because you have to, because it's safe, yeah. right? But, but you're not, you're not letting the dog know that. So what I see a lot of trainers do is they do an awful lot of attention work, which is usually to call the dog's name. And when the dog looks at you to give them a treat or whatever, and that will work if you, if they practice it enough. However, the difference between a dog trainer and a dog owner is about that much. Sure. I mean, it's, it's huge, yeah. right? Because we, if you're a dog trainer, you tend to pay attention to the dog all the time. Yeah. I remember an old joke about that, that if you, how can you tell there's a whole bunch of dog, who the dog trainers are at the party? They're the ones who are always looking down at the dog. <laughs> they're not looking at the people. They're always looking at the dog. Yeah. And and it, it's really true because we're concentrating and we're concentrating on the, on the environment. Yeah. You know, what's happening? What dog is coming over here? Is there a cat on that roof over there? What, you know, we're looking everywhere all the time. Yeah. Whereas most people are thinking about dinner yeah. <laughs> or, you know, or, or a problem at work yeah. or whatever. So they're doing what they do and they're not concentrating on the needs of their dog at that very moment yeah. in time. Yeah, I, I, so, I think a similar thing can be said about, you know, we've talked to a parenting coach before too, right? And so a parenting coach, you know, they just have, they've just heard a lot more stories. They've had many more conversations. They've done a lot of the, the research, whereas a normal parent, you know, even though they're trying their best, maybe their collective parenting knowledge is going to be based on a small radius of who they grew up with or you know, the, the people in their family. And so the, the, the delta between their knowledge and the knowledge of the uh, parenting coach is going to be so vast as well. Oh, yeah. yeah. So anytime you've got an, an expert of anything, yeah. um, it, 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 
But the problem is that just like parenting, dog ownership, you know, this is, dog ownership is one of the very few fields, I guess, or areas of knowledge where the person is um, expected to know a lot because. Sure. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> you know, there's there's no reason for them to know this yeah, stuff. Yeah. I think my clients today, the, they have two dogs. One of them is an older dog that was really easy. Mm-hmm. It was just a, she's just a lovely dog and she was really, really easy. And the second dog is not. Yeah. Um, she's a little healer mix and she's much more difficult. And so, yeah, I said, yes, when you have an easy dog, you think you're a great trainer. Yeah. When you get a hard dog, you realize you don't know anything at all. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, I mean, we talked about that in the intro as well in that, you know, some dog parents might have a harder time when their first dog was easier and their second dog is terribly overexcited because there's almost like this like mourning process uh, in terms of obviously to your point skills, but to other things in terms of their definition of what a dog is and how a dog should behave and all that. And so that adjustment might be, might be harder compared to someone who just started off with an overexcited dog. Yeah. Oh, I, I think, I think there, there, there are two things. The first thing is yes, absolutely. If you have an unrealistic expectation of your dog based on your previous dog or the dog you had as a child who, you know, your mother trained or something, then you just assume that everything is going to fall into place. Yeah. And then when it doesn't, yeah. it, you, you blame the dog. Yeah. On the other hand, if you have a really overexcited dog or a dog that's got reactivity issues as your first dog, you may never get another dog. Yeah, that's true. Because that is so much work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you have to pay so much attention to it. And, you know, it's funny, and I'm sure you've seen this as well. People who have problem dogs they spend a lot of time telling you how good the dog is at home (laughs) you know oh they're they're wonderful at home and you know it's funny because it's like we know that we we know that your dog is wonderful at home your dog is is problematic in one area there's no such thing as a dog that's all bad and there's no such thing as a dog that's really all good although there are some that are pretty close so you know (laughs) Yeah. yeah, yeah, we have this conversation about labels all the time and I I try very hard if I see a person labeling their dog as a whole to kind of just break it down a little bit so that we're not thinking that this is an aggressive dog, let's say, or just always a reactive mm-hmm. dog because that can really color how we see our dog and kind of put us in a more helpless state versus seeing a certain context and a certain behavior that arises that can make it easier for us to process the idea of mm-hmm. just working in, in that one area that needs that needs that help. Right. You're, you're really talking about a dog behaving badly as opposed to a bad dog. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. 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 Labels are really good at just helping us alleviate our own guilt or our our own responsibility uh, toward a situation. Right. If if you say that a dog is stubborn, then you're like, well, I can't do anything about that. And so, you know, that's just uh, what I'm going to have to deal with as opposed to empowering yourself that, you know, these are just certain behaviors that can with 
you know, enough consistency that you could help alleviate. But yeah, sometimes labeling things is a way to, for us to just not do anything about it. Yeah. I think the other thing is not realizing who dogs are. So um, speaking of, of, you know, arousal, I think probably 90% of the clients that I have have dogs that bark in the backyard or along on the deck or whatever. And so I try to explain what territoriality is and how you will never stop a dog from being territorial any more than you can ever stop us from being territorial. Mm -hmm. And some dogs are vocally territorial yeah. and others are not. Mm -hmm. And that's the other thing. Genetics is going to play a huge part in that. And environment is going to be the trigger for the end for the uh, genetics. Right. So, you know, it's hard for people to get that because because me, the owner, because I do not want the dog to bark. He should know he's not going to bark when he's behaving completely instinctively yeah. and going, no, no, this is what I have to do. This is this is my job. And this is a very important job. Yeah. And, you know, I would say from my point of view as a behavior consultant for the last 35 years, this is a big issue for me that people have these expectations of dogs and dog excitement that everything is trainable. Right. And it's not, mm. you know, you can't stop a dog from being a dog just because you wish that he wasn't. Yeah. Which is why we have things like bark collars yeah. and stuff like that, yeah. because that's suppressing a behavior that comes naturally. Yeah, that's definitely a conversation that we've had in the past, um, even with Kim Brophy, you know, being a guest, because there's just, there's just companies out there whose marketing is just selling you the world, that if only you get this device, all of your problems will disappear. And sometimes with the use of some tools or devices some dogs may just look a little bit more let's say calm but if you can actually read the body language you will see that there is more going on there but you know we're mm -hmm. like oh i wish my dog was more like that and then we look at it and it's like no this dog actually looks kind of sad i don't think that's a well behaved you know or just kind of like a happy type of dog but it's just the, mar yeah. the marketing messages are so strong that mm -hmm. it leads us to believe that those things are what we want and possible to achieve oftentimes. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like what happens with, happened with children. Um, you know, that if you are punitive towards the child, they may be afraid to behave in a way that's natural to them. Yeah. But does that make them happy? No. Does it make, the that them appear to be compliant and therefore good i suppose to some people it does whereas a normal child is going to be noisy and curious and get getting into all kinds of stuff um which a lot of people don't like and of course a normal dog will be noisy and curious and all those things and because of that and then people don't want that yeah. or they only want it when they want it. Sure. They, they only want the dog to, you know, to do what they want to do when they want to do it. 
which is just a form of egotism. Yeah. Well, so how do you then handle a situation where you might come in for a consult, the client is frustrated about the set of behaviors that uh, overexcitement is causing, and maybe from your standpoint, this dog is acting fairly normally to you, whereas the client's like, I need yeah. these. Um, I need these set of behaviors to stop because I don't like them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So how do you find yourself drawing the line with them? Because as Tanya said, like sometimes you have to just accept the dog that's in front of you. I, I think that's a very popular phrase in, in dog training, of course. So do you find yourself kind of trying to shift their mindset when they're presenting mm-hmm. this oh, dog yeah. to you that to you, like I mentioned before, is acting fairly normally, albeit a bit, you know, feisty or whatever. So what do you do in those situations? Yeah, it's acting like a two-year-old dog instead of a 10-year-old dog. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I, essentially the way I've done it for years now is, and this is just how I do consults, is... We sit down and they tell me what's going on with their dog for probably 15 to 20 minutes. And, you know, so I don't judge the stuff that they're doing. I don't I don't try to tell them that, you know, in the beginning that this is something that, you know, that you just have to accept about your dog or anything like that. And then we talk about what they would like. And then we talk about who the dog is. So we go through this whole process. So they start to learn that their dog might not be the dog that they thought he or she was, but they may be a, just a wonderful dog. Mm-hmm. And so they they begin to really accept the dog. And then, of course, I'm a management queen. I mean, you know, <laughs> I, if there are ways for me to manage the dog's in, in behavior so that the dog is in a position to not do something wrong, I will do that, you know, 90% of the time. I will, that way, if that takes the place of training, I'll do it. Sure. Um, you know, I, I'm not so much a trainer as I am a, you know, a problem solver. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to look for ways to make both parties happy. And sometimes that's not possible. But I have to say, in most cases, by the time we've gotten to the point where somebody is going, oh, I don't know if I can live with this dog you know, it's a legitimate, we're talking about a legitimate thing, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, because I come from a shelter background, I'm very, very practical. Mm -hmm. If a dog is a bad fit for a family, I will, we will talk about it. If the dog is dangerous to the family, we will talk about it. If I think the dog should be rehomed or euthanized, we will talk about it. Because, I mean, I was 20 years at a humane society. That's what we did. You know, so luckily it doesn't happen very often. <laughs> Most of the time, yeah, everything's going to work out. It's all going to be fine. Yep. Um, but um, but here's the, another thing about me, which I'm just lucky at. I don't, I, I how can I say this without sounding egotistical? I, I don't need the money. Okay. <laughs> I am not. In, <laughs> I am not, an, I'm not rich by any means, yeah. you know, but, but I don't have to do something to make ends meet. Mm-hmm. And because of that, we can have a really good conversation about real stuff. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? That does. That does. 
Um, but going back to what you were saying about uh, a dog that's territorial, a dog that, um, mm-hmm. you know, they were brought up or even raised or breeded because of these particular skills. Maybe back in the day, it was a way to alert the tribe when an enemy is coming and it was very valued, but maybe not anymore. And you mentioned that you don't think that this behavior could be trained. But if I was coming to you and you came to my, our home for a consult and we had that mm-hmm. exact same issue. And if you don't believe it can be trained, what would you do or how would oh, you Oh, I didn't them? say it can be trained. Uh-huh. I didn't say it can't be trained. What I'm saying is that the instinct isn't going to go away. Okay, so that instinct is always going to be there. Yeah. So say we come up with a behavior, a, a, a way to solve this particular behavior problem with this particular dog. Yeah. Um, and they start it and everything works well. I don't want them to think that, okay, now the dog is trained, we can stop doing right. it. Because in the case of a deep, deep instinct like that, the chances are that it will recover. Yeah. It will come back. Yeah. Instinctive drift is very real. But so if you came to me and you said, Trish, I've got this dog. I live, my next door neighbor is in, a, in an apartment. Uh, they're, they're pissed off because my dog is barking all the time. Yeah. What can I do? So we would talk about various main, you know, ways to manage the environment so that the 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 dog does not bark as much as it has been, you know, has barked. And usually that is cutting off certain perches where the dog looks out on the window and stuff like that and making helping people understand that that is that is not a lot of people think that a dog is kind of getting its entertainment by looking out of a window and barking. And I suppose they are, mm-hmm. but it's not it's not making the behavior any better. Yep. And then when it comes to training, then and this is just me, and there are lots of ways of for training this kind of stuff. But I I have a tendency if a dog is barking because they're territorial, I have a tendency to call the dog to me and then to reinforce an alternate behavior. So that's kind of where I go with it. And I, and usually the behavior is a slow sit. Yeah. So I do something that I call slow training, which is just really a slow sit with a really, really slow reward. And, um, you know, so, so that the dog stops thinking about the thing that got them so excited in the first place. Mm-hmm. So I didn't mean to give the impression that I don't think you can fix things. Yeah. You can fix them. It's just that when you fix it, it's not going to be... It's not it's not going to be the way they think it is. Yeah, that makes they sense. think you're going to be able to turn the behavior off. Yeah, that makes sense. And and they're not a drone. I mean, you can't or AI or something. You can't do that. Yeah. So once they figure it out. Um, so, for instance, the people today, since I always I can't remember the ones from yesterday. <laughs> right. So the, the people today, they have a dog that. um um, they run out into the yard and they bark like crazy. Two dogs, they run out in the yard and they bark like crazy. And so they were told by a previous trainer to growl. I think they said this growl, so they, they growl at the dogs. And one of the dogs is very, very submissive. And so she flips over. Um, and then as soon as they stop growling at her, she gets up and runs around and barks some more. <laughs> so, so it hasn't exactly worked very well. Yeah. Um, and so they're thinking that they have to punish the behavior so it will go away because it's an unwanted behavior. Yeah. 
So part of my job is to say, this is, it may be an unwanted behavior to you, but it's a natural behavior to the dog. So we have to come up with some kind of compromise, some kind of way that the dog can understand that you have now done your job, your job is over and you need to come to me. And the second part of it was that they thought dogs require access to the backyard. And these are adult dogs. They can go out in the backyard when the people go out there with them. You know, remember what I said in the beginning about dogs need a lot more rest than we think they do. They don't run. Well, you know this. They don't run around the yard (laughs) unless they're excited or unless they're overexcited. So so bring them in with you. They want to be with you. Let them be with you. Yeah, I mean, it just made me think that particularly the the United States, we're very punishment-based, right? If we want people to do good behavior, we think just punishing bad behavior is a way to kind of nudge them toward the ideal, which it's hard to even know what the American ideal good behavior even is, but we're definitely the most punishment- We have a lot of different ideas about what it (laughs) is. I mean, we we jail the same percentage of our population as North Korea. Like we're very punishment based. So I could understand where that instinct comes from, for sure. Well, and it goes right along with the other one, which is I don't want to use treats. Mm -hmm. You know that the person who says I don't want to use treats and you go, why don't you want to use treats? Because, you know, that means they're not thinking that I'm 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 the alpha. Oh, okay. You know, we're the humans, we're the alpha uh, without even trying. Yeah. We don't have to work at this kind of stuff. Yeah. So, you know, why is punishment, as you say, better than rewards? Yeah. I, I don't understand yeah. that. So a lot of this is with the client is kind of, you know, moving them in that direction. Like, okay, so we, we know that punishment suppresses behavior. We know that if a behavior is suppressed, that doesn't mean the emotion that underlies the behavior is suppressed. What that means is that the dog isn't doing it, but not that it doesn't want to do it. So if a dog wants to do it, then as soon as you take that balloon from pressing down, it's just going to go explode. So whereas if you, you know, if you, if you're kind, if you say, I wish you to do this for me. And they go, oh, that's a good idea. They now know what's in it for them, and they're going to do much better at it. But, you know, fighting that impulse or the the American mindset of, you know, you got to do something to punish the behavior. And I think it almost feels righteous for some people. Like religious almost, yeah. Which, yes, which is so weird. Yeah, You know, you don't need to do that. I see it almost as a um, cognitive dissonance piece, right? It's just when mm-hmm. I am meeting them and they're, they have this issue and then, you know, when the dog is doing the thing we don't want them to do, uh, what do we do? Like, we just get so stressed, like, unless we punish it, then how are we going to let the dog know that we didn't like what yeah. they did? Yeah. And when I say, you know, it's okay, we don't need to punish it, we can figure out how to work around it. That kind of 
in the initial stages can can stress people out. They feel like they have to do something, at least something in that moment, right? Yes, mm -hmm. but also um, earlier I actually observed um, <laughs> an occurrence as I was working with one client. I saw one old client uh, who wasn't using management, and their dog, who is a young dog, did a thing that the young dog would do if they're free off leash and there is another person and a dog walking by, which was run to us. And then, um, you know, I think that my client after finishing working with me is just taken on his own approach to training, which then he proceeded to, <laughs> to kind of uh, roll the dog on their back and kind of do whatever I did. I, we continued walking. Half a roll. Half a roll, yeah. yes. Yeah. So, you know, it's just for me, oftentimes with the punishment component, the thing that gets me really confused is that, well, the dog is already doing it, doing the behavior is just so reactive. And I don't see how this, you know, person now punishing the dog is actually going to make sure that the dog doesn't run off next time, because I think they would, they would still choose because you know, there is distance between them. If they see there is that initial reaction and response that the dog has, that they will still make the choice a big percentage of the time to do that behavior. And um, yeah, I guess <laughs> it was, well, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's very frustrating when that kind of thing happens. So usually what I tell clients nowadays is, because they, they, we get angry when a dog does something wrong. We get yeah. angry. Yeah. I mean, how many times? How many people do you know who can say I've never yelled at my dog? Right. Yeah. You know. So what I normally will tell somebody now is, yes, you can say you're a bad dog. Just don't expect that to change the next time. Mm -hmm. You will have to do it for something. You're going to have to come up with a plan of what you will do to actually modify the behavior as opposed to just responding right. to the behavior. Exactly. And, you know, and I think that just like dogs, people are, some people are really smart and some people aren't. And the people <laughs> who are, who really think a lot, they're going to go, oh, she's right. I've been telling my dog, no, don't do that for the last two years yeah. and he's still doing yeah. it. So obviously that's not working. Yeah which used to be one of my favorite things. I mean, the guy would go, oh, I remember there was a guy that was really funny because he goes, well, this was the guy, somebody with a Rottweiler and the Rottweiler was resource guarding everything in the house. And so I said, well, what do you do when the dog grabs something? Because this is scary. You know, the people were in, in their seventies and the dog is a great big dog and whatever he wanted to resource guard, he resource guarded. And so... What happened is the guy said, well, whenever he does that, I take him by the scruff and I shake it and get really mad at him. And I said, how's that working for yeah. you? And he stopped and he thought and he went, it doesn't work. Yeah. And he go, I went, nope, it doesn't, does it? Yeah. So then we came up with a plan. He had to actually understand that in your case, Tanya, throwing the dog on the ground isn't going to change anything yeah. but they you know they have to come to that conclusion themselves yeah. exactly. i guess and i i, I yeah. do think that yeah. for some people um 
it could be a part of like their ego too like how they perceive themselves like if you think <laughs> <laughs> like if i i i've said to them use a long leash you know so the dog doesn't have the ability to run off to the street but then you know you have mm -hmm. the person thinking well no i'm just gonna do it off leash you know well because I am very capable individual. I can do it off leash and that's how I'm going to do it. And, and then, you know, we just have to accept that that's just how it is sometimes too. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, in our business, one of the biggest things is to accept people for who they are. Exactly. Sure, right? yes. So you, and there are some people you can help and there are some people you cannot help. I and I'm sure that this is the case with most people. I choose to work with people I can work with. But there are very few people. I think in my county is a small county and um, and I'm very well known. Yeah. So I think the people who gravitate to me kind of know what my, you know, what my philosophy mm -hmm. is. And, um, and so I, I don't also I think I'm I sound like I know what I'm talking about. I have to say some of the big words that I use are really handy <laughs> just to help people think, oh, well, maybe she's scientifically, but, you know, she knows what she's talking about. But, you know, I, I like people. And I think that's a big deal because um, I think that if you, if you like people and you want to work with them, most of the time you can eventually get through. Yeah. But I know, Tanya, what you're talking about. You're, you see somebody who was a client of yours and they're, and you're, they're using something that was probably taught to them by somebody else. Yeah. And they have decided, or, or the biggest thing around our place now is people who use e-collars yeah. and they are very, very popular. And to give them their due, they work sometimes. So you can't say, no, they don't work at yeah. all. It's for me, it's a moral choice. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I do not want to use pain to train, but it is. I mean, we're always going to have these issues yeah. and there's no standard. Of course. Well, not yet. Hopefully, hopefully you know. sooner rather than later. But yeah, exactly. Um, no, but kudos to that guy for actually thinking about your question in terms of how's that working for you? Because I was going to say, I think there's a lot of people, myself included. We do a lot of things every day. That if we were asked, how's that working for you? And we really thought about it. We're like, actually, that's not working for me at all. But it's just the way I've always, I'll, <laughs> I've always done, I, I've always done it. And um, maybe yeah. I, I need someone to tell me more from time to time. How's that working for you? Because then it might force myself to kind of look at the way I react or my behavior on a day-to-day -day basis and look at that a little bit more critically. Yeah, and I also think that probably there's a lot that we do, just like dogs, we do them that in response to stimuli, you know, something hits us a certain way and we respond a certain yeah. way. And it's usually, um, it's rehearsed. I mean, you know, the reason we do things is because we've done it like that before. Yeah. And that's the same thing with dogs. They're, they're just rehearsed behaviors. Yeah. But, you know, it, it's just really interesting. So I think the um, uh, there are two big issues that I like I'd like to bring up. The first one is socialization. 
And the second one is what dogs truly need. And I know we don't have that much time left, but um, I think one of the issues that, that I've been seeing in, in young dogs, um, in, at least in our area, is over-socialization. Mm. Dogs that are, because I think of socialization as exposure. It's exposure to the world that they're going to live in. Um, that doesn't mean exposure to 500 other puppies. That doesn't mean exposure to all different kinds of people picking them up and touching them and all that kind of, it just means, it means, oh, that's what uh, people are black and white and green and yellow and purple and come in, in, in uh, uh, wheelchairs and they have umbrellas and they have hats and all that. So that's exposure. That is like, okay, people are different. I mean, we all know that there are lots of puppies that come from puppy mills or even good breeders who have never seen a man. Yeah. And then they don't know what to do with a man, right? So that that's what I think of as socialization. Limited amounts of socialization with other dogs always when the behave, when it's going to be a good a good experience. And then a lot of exposure to the human world, the world around them. And I think what now has happened is that people think of socialization as playing with a lot of puppies and playing with not even adult dogs, just playing with a lot of puppies. And that's not socialization. That's puppy play, mm -hmm. which isn't a bad thing. It's just not socialization. So I think if we could skew that a little yeah. bit and make it so that they understood what that they're supposed to get used to the world they live yeah. in, that would be so helpful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we'll be back right after this break. Are you looking for an exceptional veterinary care experience for your cat or dog? Good Heart Animal Health Centers are here for all your pet's needs. Their happy, helpful team provides full service care for all stages of your pet's life. Separate areas for dogs and cats help keep checkups low stress for people and their pets. New clients receive a personalized pet name tag and a bottle of wine as a thank you for giving them a try. Goodhart has two locations in Denver, at Broadway and Alameda, and in Cherry Creek. For more information, visit goodhart.vet. Now back to the episode. So going back to the beginning of the conversation, you were talking about, um, you know, the idea that maybe we're overstimulating our dogs just because maybe we're overstimulating mm -hmm. ourselves. And you're also saying now that we're over socializing our dogs. So what would be kind of the rule of thumb that you might tell clients in terms of, all right, here is over socialization and here's over excitement. Let's nudge us back over here. What might be your your recommended schedule just because you know for a lot of clients they're getting messages from all over the place and they're trying to manage as best as they can so how mm -hmm. do you demarcate between over socialization over excitement to more normal particularly for the breed and for the animal that the dog is Okay, so I mean, there's a lot of breed differences. A herding dog is going to need something completely different than than a a chihuahua oh, yeah. or something. But you know, in the in the in the grand scheme of things, if if you had enough time to do this, you would sit down with the person and say, "Okay, what's your life like? I are you very social? Are you um, not social? What we want to do is get your dog used to your life." used to what your life is going to be like. So in the case of myself and my partner, 
Um, we don't go to many parties or anything like that, but we walk in open space a lot. So we walk in, in places where you can, I think Colorado has a lot of open For spaces sure. too, yeah. right? Yeah. So that's what I want my dogs to get used to. So from the time they're little puppies, we are, and we have a lot of, we have, foster, we have um, adopted dogs now that we're adopted as adults, but we didn't for a long time. Um, I mean, I might take a puppy out in the front pack. So they get used to what open space looks mm -hmm. like. Um, if, if for, for people, I might have a person sit down and put the puppy on the other person's lap and, but only for a minute and then back over to mm -hmm. us. So you're trying to do things in the, in the, in the right context. Mm -hmm. So if, since I live in a suburban area, I wouldn't particularly get my dog used, certainly a puppy used to an urban lifestyle mm -hmm. because that would be silly. Yeah. They're not going to live there. So it's the same kind of thing with if you think that you, if you have a lot of friends with dogs, your puppy should be introduced to those dogs as soon as it's safe to do so. And even to the extent of carrying them around in a front pack. But, you know, they don't necessarily need to go to a puppy class where they're going to socialize with a lot of puppies, some of whom are going to be bullies. Mm -hmm. And some of the time that you might have a bully and you don't want your dog to learn to be a yeah. bully. Um, they really should socialize with adult dogs. That's who they should socialize with because the adults are who they're going to yeah. live with. They're going to live with another dog who, if you bite them, they're going to go, do you can't do that to me. Right? So that's what they need. So what you try to do is figure out what your life is like and then go, how do I slowly and carefully and gently teach my dog about our lives? And it's pretty simple if you think of it yeah. that way. But, you know, a lot of trainers go, oh, they're supposed to have a hundred different, you know, I don't know, a hundred different exposures to it. Why? <laughs> what, 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 why on earth would you do that? Why don't you just say, what is my life right. like? That's a good question. What is my life like? And let's help my dog. Yeah. yeah. You know. The dog doesn't need, if a dog is going to be a service dog, it's going to need very different things than if it's just going to be a pet. Yeah. Um, and if a dog is going to be a herding dog, you definitely need something <laughs> different there too. So what what is my life yeah. like? It's kind of like when you go to see a client and you go, you're looking at the dog and you go, hi, who are you? What do you like? What do you want to do? And then you go to the people. Hi, how are you? What do you want to do? How do you want to live your yeah. life? And then you figure out a way for that all to come together. Love that. So let's talk about, you know, we've just been on a roll and I've been thoroughly enjoying this. But, um, you know, I just want to give a little background about how we found you. We found you on the Wildest website uh, and you have a blog post there called How to Calm a Dog Down, Curbing Over Excitement in Dogs. And so one thing you see there is, while it's easy to assume a dog's exuberance means they're happy, the opposite may be true. Overexcited dogs may be stressed and anxious, which can lead to behavior issues. As such, what would you say is happening inside the, the brain of a dog that has experienced what we might call happy overexcitement compared to stress and anxious overexcitement? And are there any differences about your approach um, uh, with a client that might have a dog that is exhibiting one or the other? And you could really tell you know, what type of overexcitement that their dog is experiencing? Well, it is an interesting thing 
that chemistry doesn't care whether you're happy or sad. Okay? Chemistry doesn't care. So you watch a whole bunch of children playing on in a play in a play yard and they're having a great time. They're screaming and they're yelling and they're having just having a super time. And every mother there or every parent there knows at a certain level of excitement somebody's going to start crying. Because it kicks over from happy to to angry to any other emotion um, without because that's what chemistry does. Um, you start off happy. That is obviously a chemical all by itself. But then with, as the adrenaline keeps, you know, rising, then it doesn't matter. So you see and in pit bulls, you see this a lot, of course, when they start to play. And it will roll over into aggression as when it hits a certain level. So what I want to do with most of my clients is to go, okay, let's watch the dog. And I teach them interrupt cues when they're still happy. Mm. So they're playing with each other. I'll teach a cue, interrupt. Usually what you do is you'll you'll say enough and then you walk through the dogs. So the dogs actually have to redirect on you to, to look at you. And then you stop and you might give them a pet or a treat and then you let them go back and play again so that you can start controlling that level mm -hmm. of adrenaline that's in their body. Because I don't know that it's possible for us to always tell when it tips over into anger or anxiety. Right. It, 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 we just don't know. And I don't think we know for ourselves. Just think of any football game where there's a fight. Yeah. They're having a good time and then suddenly they're not having a good time. Or, or like siblings that are like play fighting or something and someone gets a little, hit a little bit mm -hmm. too hard. I, I've experienced that myself you know, growing up for sure. Yeah. So what you try to do then is to teach the dog, when I call you, when I interrupt you, you get interrupted. So they learn that they have an off signal. And that's the best thing that I've ever found for that. Um, I really like interrupt signals yeah. for all kinds of stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, particularly for high levels of emotion. Yeah. Because, I mean, once if two dogs in a family start to fight, Sometimes it's almost impossible to stop them from fighting and, you know, and to, to figure out what the triggers yeah. are. I mean, most of the time, most owners don't know what the trigger is. They don't, they don't have a yeah. clue or they think it's this and it's really that, you know, they don't maybe see that the dog is staring or whatever. So if, if, if you teach them an interrupt cue, and you can use it at any time, then they just, they can hear it even though, remember when you're, when you're first teaching a dog to come when they're called and you're, and they're running away and you're like, you know, bongo, come. And they're like, I don't hear you. <laughs> right. Yeah. So the recall is actually an interrupt mm -hmm. cue. And once you've really taught it, then you, they will, they will hear it even though they're deeply involved in chasing a mm -hmm. squirrel. So let's talk about the calming cue. You know, this is one of the most common cues, which is something that you recommend too in your blog post is, you know, we might use certain cues uh, like bed or settle to, and reward them for staying there with duration in the hopes that this calms the dog down, right? But for some dogs, 
especially some that are like just very attuned, you know, they might be just so in the zone with the training. They're just looking at your hand the entire time, BDI, they're staring, anticipating the treat. And as such, they're just never relaxing. And so how would you troubleshoot a situation like that? Because as you know, the situation can cause the dog to get frustrated, ultimately get out of position because of the frustration and the cycle just keeps continuing and no real training occurs. So I'm wondering if that's happened to you and how do you approach a situation like that? Well, there are, I think, a couple of ways that you can do it. The first thing is using management. So before I really teach a, a, a long settle, uh, which I think is what you're talking yeah. about, um, I, I'll probably use a tie down or a tether. Um, and I start putting the dog on the tether for five to 15 minutes every, uh, you know, a couple of times a day. And they get a chewy or they get, this isn't punishment. This is just, this is time for you to calm down. This is nap time. So that they have the habit of calming down. And then now you can actually start teaching them using the place where you might've had a tether only without a tether. Um, I think one of the issues is that, and I don't know if this is still prevalent, but one of the issues has always been that that the dog is thinking about a treat after they get up from the 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 settle, so they get a treat as a reward. And I never give whenever I'm doing any kind of stationary cue, the dog never gets the reward when they get out of it. They get the reward when they're mm-hmm. in it. So they would lie down. Um, I might give them a little massage to keep them there, or if they're a good relaxer, I won't, but I'll then go over, give the dog a treat, tell them to stay again, and then come back Mm -hmm. again. Um, but I find that, that self-control is a, um, resource that can run out with dogs. So what you really want to do is work that behavior for fairly short periods of time when you already know that the dog is pretty relaxed to begin with. And then, and then I, I use management to start the behavior. I think one of the funniest behaviors that I see all the time are people who try to teach their dog to go to place when somebody's coming to the door, hmm. right? Because they, that somebody's knocking at the door and you're telling your dog to go to place or go to their bed or whatever. And I'm sorry, it doesn't work with the vast majority of of people because first of all, for several reasons, one being that they never practice place enough because it's, it's boring Mm -hmm. to practice. So that's one reason. Another reason is that there is more stimulation now than there ever was when they were put, when they were practicing it, we got somebody at the door, even if it's a good friend of theirs at the door. And the third thing is you're trying to concentrate on teaching your dog place while you're saying hello to somebody at the mm-hmm. door. So it, it's, it's totally non-successful in the vast majority of cases. Mm-hmm. So I don't even bother with that anymore. I used to back when I did a lot more training. Now I do, you know, really consulting. So not as much training and, um, probably shouldn't say that I really do a lot of training, but it's, I guess I've just pick and choose what I train, yeah, you know, yeah. But I do use a tether a lot. I use a tie down a great deal because that helps the dog go, I have to relax Mm -hmm, now. mm -hmm. And they just learn to relax. And I've used, we've used it on all of our dogs and I've had a lot of dogs. And um, 
and I've used it on tons and tons of client dogs. Yeah. And it was one of the things when I was teaching the aggressive dog class that we used to teach the dogs to go on a settle in on a tie down where they're not going to get approached by anybody, any other dog or anything, but they learn to settle yeah. down. So I think calming exercises, to your point, calming exercises are really important. It's just that, again, you have to set yourself up for success rather than rather than going, well, this is what a good obedient dog should do. Right. So if you, you take all the shoulds out and you just say, what, what can we do to get to the appropriate um, solution for this issue? Um, so cool. I would love just kind of your both of your guys' opinion. And I don't want an answer per se, because obviously you haven't seen the dog. You haven't seen the dog in person. But I just want to get a sense of what kind of thought processes you're having as I'm reading this. And so... This is just a training inquiry from someone who has a overexcited dog. And I just want to mm-hmm. hear your guys' thoughts. Cool. So this, this is verbatim from the training inquiry. One behavioral issue has been extremely difficult for us. And that behavioral issue is overexcitement when we're about to take him outside. The moment either of us starts to walk toward the front door, where we keep our walking gear, he loses his mind and barks so forcefully that his whole body rocks back and forth. The overexcitement and barking continues until we get outside, and we live on the fourth floor of an apartment building, so it's incredibly <laughs> stressful. Sometimes he gets yeah, sometimes he gets so worked up that he bites us. Uh, level two, Max. He said, "I have tried periodically putting on, taking off leashes when we're not going out. I've tried walking over to the front door and pretending to get." Their walking gear ready before returning and rewarding for good behavior. I have tried working him through several commands to try to redirect him. I always give him lots of praise and reward during the brief moments that he does calm down. Our dog has good obedience and a pretty solid weight ability, but when it comes to this, it's like a completely different dog, similar to when he's over threshold reacting to another dog on leash. At this point, I've broken down to the point of keeping a jar of low calorie kibble by the door which I scatter on the floor to keep them busy while I get us geared up. I also have to throw a piece of kibble periodically as we make our way out of the building. It's a band-aid solution for sure, but it at least keeps us from living in constant fear of eviction. So a lot there. So I just want to know what you, what thoughts kind of this uh, engendered uh, in the both of you. Yeah. Tanya, you want to go first? No, you can go Trish. Okay. All right. So the dog is excited. The dog is overexcited, right? Um, and what does he need to learn? He needs to learn to calm down. What is the owner doing right now to help him? He's doing um, a lot of what he calls band-aids. Some of them are very good. The, you know, doing the find it's on the way down. I think that's a perfectly fine thing to do. Um, but I think what I would be doing here, if, if it were my dog or if it were my client and they had quite a bit of time to work on it, um, is to teach the dog that when he thinks he's going to go out, his behavior will actually cause him to be able to go out or not to be able to go out. So I can, I can tell you what I did with my Rottweiler years and years sure. ago, and this will give you an idea. Sure. 
he would go completely kabunkers when we were going to get ready for a walk. He would jump up and down and um, the whole house would mm. shake because he was a Rottweiler. Yeah. And um, so it, it, it was, he, I think we got him when he was 14 months old. So he already had this behavior when we got him. So what I would do is I would take him to the kitchen door where we, where we left and I'd put his collar on. And if he was good for that, that was great. If he wasn't good for that, as soon as I started putting his collar on, if he started jumping up and down, I'd sit down and pretend to read the newspaper. This is a long time ago. I didn't have a phone to read. <laughs> um, so then it's when he, he'd finally calm back down again and he'd look at me like, what's wrong with you? Then I'd stand up and start to put the collar back on. And then if he jump, jumped up again, I'd sit back down again. So it ended up being the first time I did it it took me 20 minutes to reach the door. That's a long time because we first of all had to get his collar and leash on, and then we had to take steps towards the door. So I would take one step towards the door. He'd start to jump. I'd go sit back down again. I'd start to read the newspaper. Mm -hmm. I never gave him any cues. He never got anything. I never said, sit. I never said, Barney, you're a bad dog. I never did nothing. And we went to the door and it is really funny because after that first time, that first time we got to the door and then we walked out the door and he was walking like this. Because he knew that if he'd made a, a, an excited movement, I was going to go back in again. After that, the first time it took 20 minutes, the second time it took 10 minutes. The third time it took about five minutes and then we got stuck at five minutes for a while and then he got better and he was fine after that. So I, you know, when I wasn't on a fourth floor walk up, you know, that, that's a lot to go down fourth four right. floors. So I probably would have used find it to go down the fourth mm -hmm. floor, but that, you know, it's kind of like an almost instant timeout. It is, the, but the dog's behavior is it's real operant conditioning. The dog's behavior is operating on its environment. And right. so he was, the, he was the one who made it happen. Yeah. Okay, Tanya, what would you do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that this approach is really powerful because we can teach the dog to, yeah, that his behavior has a consequence. And in this case, the thing that they really, really want, which is going out, is going to be dependent on their state. Um, I, yeah, I think that's wonderful. I was actually working on something similar the other day. And one thing that I see sometimes, too, is just kind of troubleshooting the coaching with the people and kind of building their patience also. Because mm -hmm. we're working on kind of like a sit to say hi. And uh, we wanted the puppy to be calmer in order to be greeted. And if not, you know, the person just kind of, let's say, added a little distance. Um, so I think that's really powerful. Uh, what I was thinking, too, is just... Um, helping the dog understand some sort of routine that is related to this is how we go out the front door. So um, something that is predictive, pre predictable and consistent, like teaching them, you know, to go to a certain place, we're going to put on the leash and then this is how we're going to go out. I do like the idea of 
yeah, the finder and the sniffing, I think that's really good because it can help calm them down. I may even add their, like starting to teach their, the dog some walk, walking with attention, maybe just as a substitute for um, sniffing treats on the ground as well. Cause that seems like it may be a little bit easier for the person to navigate and seeing if the dog can do it this way they just have something else that they know how to do and just kind of add it to that same context and, and that's what's coming to my mind and then it sounds like they're trying to desensitize the dog to to their you know leashes and harnesses just kind of see what that looks like the dog doesn't then, need to be de dog doesn't need to be desensitized to it no. Right. Okay. A dog, it, no, yeah. because it's, they love it. They love that mm -hmm. stuff. They don't need desensitization. They don't need any kind of classical conditioning. What they need to do is just what you were saying. They need to know that there is a consequence for their behavior. Mm. And the consequence is not what they want. Mm -hmm. Unless they do, unless they do what you want. And then the consequences will be what they want. And yes, it is very hard to teach owners this because as far as they're concerned, this is taking time from the walk, which is what it is. But in the end, no matter what technique you use, it will give you more time in the end. You know, um, it's just, it's just, it is really hard that uh, Barney, the particular Rottweiler I was talking about also would jump up and down and bark in the truck. And I use this same technique in the truck. As soon as he would jump up and down, I'd pull over to the side. I'd sit there. He'd be quiet. I'd turn on the engine. He'd bark. I'd turn off the engine. It was tedious, mm -hmm. but it worked. Yeah. Wait, so as the non-trainer uh, in this conversation right now, can you guys go a little bit into why desensitization doesn't work here in terms of going for the leash and, and whatnot. I, I guess maybe you're saying that it's, it's not. Okay. So what, here. what's yeah. going on right now is you're, if, when you desensitize a dog to something that you're trying to make them used to it. Right. I think the dog in question here is very used to the equipment. He likes the equipment. He doesn't need to get desensitized to it. He needs to understand that it does not mean that he can get excited because right now what he thinks is that when you put it on, he's going to get excited because he knows what's coming next. Yeah. So you have to take that consequence away. Mm. If he was afraid of the equipment, if he you know, was physically sensitive, then you would definitely desensitize. Then as you see. start to put it on, you take it back off. You start to put it on, you take it back off. So desensitization is generally used when there is a fear component to this whole thing. Okay. Um, and, uh, and I think that it is not necessarily, it does not depend so much on consequences. It's just getting used to. So I have a client whose dog is afraid of getting in the car. So we're doing desensitization and counter conditioning in the car. Mm -hmm. So we, you know, we made the car very inviting for her. We sat in the car we had her come in, we had her jump out, we had her come in, we had her jump out, we stopped the session, we came back about 10 minutes later and did it again. Mm -hmm. Consequently, she's fine now, she's no longer afraid of the car. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, decent, it's, it's definitely very useful. Yeah. Um, but I don't think in this particular case, having the dog get used to the stuff is going to stop the excitement behavior, the over arousal yeah. before going outside. Okay, okay, that makes sense to me. 
Yeah, I think so too. It's just, yeah, I we. It seems like even though you know she's done that, picking up the leash and putting down the leash, there is other things that we can focus our energy on, and like other ways to communicate to the dog and empower the dog in making different decisions than you know spending time on picking up the leash and putting it down. Uh, yeah, I mean, you could even you could even do a really fun one, uh, which would be. As soon as he starts to get excited, you go out the door yourself. Hmm. You're like, well, I'm leaving. And then you wait till they're calm and you come back and they then they get excited and you leave again. Yeah. So it's the exact opposite, right? It's mm-hmm. not, it's instead of you sitting down, you're going, well, I'm going. No, interesting. I'm just not le- le- to letting you come with me. Yeah. And that also can teach them stuff. So what I, it's kind of like if you have a little dog that's a lap garter, you know, so they sit on the lap and they guard. And you want to, there are definitely a lot of different ways of handling this. One of the ways to handle it, though, is as soon as they, he starts to guard, you remove the lap. You get up and walk away. Mm-hmm. And then the, the whole, the, the reward is gone. Yeah. So if you eliminate the reward, a lot of times what you do is then you cause the dog to think. And I would like the, my client dogs to think. Mm-hmm. I want them to understand what it is they're doing that is causing a behavior to occur mm-hmm. or causing a consequence to occur. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think it's just so much fun watching their little brains go. <laughs> ah, got it. <laughs> I agree. Yes. <laughs> um, so well, cool. I, I think we've had such a ball uh, chatting with you, Trish. I just wanted to kind of roll out the red carpet for you. How can people learn more about you? How can people get in contact with you? Uh, would love for you to share that. Well, if they there's um, they can go to my website. If you just go to trishking.net, it will take you to my website, which is Canine Behavior Associates. Um, I do teach an online academy, which is really a series of seminars. So it's kind of a lot of fun, um, so people can sign up for that if they want mm-hmm. to. And um, and I do do some Zoom consults. Honestly. I like to get my hands on the dog. So yeah. it's harder for me yeah. to do that, but I, I definitely will do it. And I've got a couple of clients in Italy and stuff like that. And we obviously can't do in-person client, you know, <laughs> consults that way. Yeah. So yeah, that's probably the best way to get hold of me. Okay. Okay. Wonderful. Well, uh, yeah, I really enjoyed the conversation. I learned a lot and it's always just pleasant to kind of get that, understanding from another professional in the field um, and have a little bit, a little bit of heart to heart and even sharing things that happen, yeah. you know, during my day too. So, uh, yeah, good yeah timing. sure. Great timing. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it was wonderful talking to you. So thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for asking me. I appreciate it. Very nice to meet you both. Just listen to the Family Pups podcast with your hosts, Tanya and Charles Lim. Subscribe to our podcast to catch our latest episodes. If you like the show, please make sure to share and review us on your favorite podcast app. And for links to anything we mentioned in the episode, check out our show notes.
And don't forget to visit familypups.com slash podcast to listen to past episodes of the Family Pups podcast, including episodes on separation anxiety with Melania Demartini Price, unpredictable aggression with Michael Shikashiel, fearful dogs with Debbie Jacobs, puppy socialization with Marge Rogers and Eileen Anderson, and many, many more.